I want to just say a few things about the uh, overall background of Paul's involvement with the Corinthians. Many of the points I'll make are really borne out more in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, but just to try, try to kind of summarize, in Acts 18, Paul went to Corinth on his second journey, soon joined by Silas and Timothy that came down from Macedonia. Um, and he's been here to happen. So he found fertile soil. The Lord actually told him to stay there. He had many people in that city. And then after Paul left, he finished his second journey. On his third journey, he spent a long time, like three years in Ephesus. At some point, he wrote an initial letter. We'll call it Hack Corinthians. Because he refers to it in 1 Corinthians 5 as the letter he wrote about not associating with immoral people, but he clarified. So there was an earlier correspondence that he wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. Sometime, I think after he wrote 1 Corinthians, there was some kind of, I suspect, a painful visit that he paid there. 2 Corinthians talks a couple of times about the third time he's visiting. Well, we don't have a record in Acts of that second visit. I guess he may have paid a quick emergency visit to them when he was at Ephesus. Who knows? He also then sent another letter. Some people think that was 1 Corinthians. Again, that's more to be debated than 2 Corinthians. I think it's another letter we don't have. One and a half Corinthians, if you want to call it that. And then Titus takes. And then Paul writes 2 Corinthians when he encountered Titus in Macedonia after he had written that letter and Titus had taken it to them. He writes 2 Corinthians and then later visited Corinth. So I think Paul, by the time we get to the end of Acts, has been in Corinth at least three times, once for a year and a half. I think he's written at least four letters to Corinth. The two letters we do have that we know he wrote is more than... Paul wrote to any other church that we have in the New Testament. And with the exception, perhaps, of, of Ephesus, more than was written to any church by, by anybody in the New Testament. So, Corinth uh, so gets a lot of attention. Uh, there's just a lot to, uh, to know about. Say about Corinth itself was an interesting city. It was on kind of an isthmus between two bodies of water, so they did a lot of commerce. They transported goods. Uh, from one side to the other. It became then kind of a cosmopolitan city, kind of a rough city, uh, known for uh, immoral behavior. Uh, they coined the term to Corinthianize somebody, was to kind of like corrupt them, that kind of a thing. You know, maybe correspond to like our New Orleans or something like that in terms of how people saw Corinth. And it's amazing then that there were people of God in a city like this. And uh, there were, and we'll certainly see that here as we look at 1 Corinthians. So that's, that's all the background I intend to give. I'm not good with that anyway, and I'd like to get into the text. So, would somebody read chapter 1, verses 1 to 3? Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brothers Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who are in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by their Lord and ours. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We probably tend sometimes to kind of pass over these first few verses of a letter, but they often say some very important things. Here Paul identified himself as one who's called as an apostle. To say that is for Paul really to give his credentials and to say that he's got the authority to speak. Uh, that he's not, he, he's got the authority of the Lord behind him. Now it's common for Paul to mention his apostleship. In 13, the, the 13 letters we have from him in the New Testament, he mentions he's an apostle in nine of them, so that's pretty common. And he wasn't uh, kind of like a self-chosen apostle. There wasn't some church that made him an apostle. Uh, but he was made that by the will of God. God's will determined the things Paul did in his life. Sosthenes, our brother, was a co-sender with Paul of this letter. That shows you Paul was not some maverick apostle. You know, he's part of a team, and he works with others. He writes to the church of God, God's people, at Corinth. From Paul's perspective, the important thing about Corinth was not something about the culture and tradition of that city. It was about these people of God that were in that city. That's what Paul thought about when he thought about Corinth. He calls them those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. They are set apart from the world. They're specially dedicated to the Lord. Um, and really, he's challenging them that somewhat with that. Their conduct and behavior haven't been fitting too well with their sanctified status. Um, and, and he says, if you're sanctified in Christ Jesus, you'll see, just look down through those first few verses of 1 Corinthians, how many times Christ or Jesus is mentioned. The focus, even in the introduction, is on the Lord, not on Paul, not on them, just as the focus of our life needs to be on the Lord. They are saints by calling them. Paul's not the only one called. He's been called to be an apostle. They're called to be saints, set apart, dedicated to God. And they're not the only ones. Notice that he emphasizes with all who in every place call the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. They, there's, a, there's a close bond that brothers have with all other brothers throughout the world. And that, I believe, is an important point in Corinthians. Paul will mention several times how all of the churches were to practice the same things. And he doesn't want the Corinthian church to be some lone rangers out sync with God's pattern for all the churches. So he emphasizes even here in the introduction, not only you, but there are many others in other places who call on the name of the Lord also. And then he wishes for them grace, which is the cause of salvation, and peace, which is the outcome from God and from Jesus Christ. Comments or questions on those first three verses? Four to nine. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul reports, as he usually does, about how he's thankful for these brethren. Which is kind of surprising after reading this letter that Paul found something to be thankful to God for in this group. But he has been, and and not just when he wrote this letter, he says, I thank my God always concerning you. For the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge. Now he thanks God for their knowledge of God's Word and their ability to communicate that. Those were two things they really thought highly of themselves about. You'll be able to see throughout this letter they thought a lot of their knowledge. It's probably time to, you know, move to another class or something. They thought a lot of uh, their knowledge and they thought a lot of their eloquence. Paul is pointing out that the knowledge and speech they have was a gift by God's grace that was given to them in Christ Jesus. Did you notice all of the passive constructions? In verse 2, they have been sanctified. In verse 4, the grace was given. In verse 5, you were enriched. In verse 6, the testimony was confirmed. In uh, verse 9, you were called. The point is, they didn't do this for themselves. God did it for them. They are the recipients of God's grace. So he's trying to get them to realize that whatever they have, they have in Christ, and it's not their own achievement that they can pride themselves on. And did you notice... What Paul usually thanks God for that he doesn't hear. If you look at some of the other letters, it's quite common for Paul to thank God for the love the brethren have. He doesn't do that here, or we'll see why not as we read through the letter. Um, But he does thank God for the things that he can. He says, it's to the point where uh, they are not lacking in any gift. That's verse 7. That's kind of an interesting way to humble them. He doesn't uh, congratulate them that they are so abundantly endowed spiritually, but he's thankful that they haven't fallen short in this area. I mean, it's kind of, uh, you know, to make them recognize that this is not something they ought to just lift themselves up with, but it is good that they are are doing okay. And they are not at the uh, goal yet, They are awaiting eagerly the revelation of Jesus Christ. They look forward to the time that Jesus will be revealed, kind of like unveiled and unmasked and opened before them. And uh, uh, he will confirm them to the end. And and because God is faithful, and so he's called them into fellowship with him, and he's reliable, and so God will continue to work with them and confirm them until the goal, which is the revealing of Christ, when they'll be brought home with him. So even in this introduction, you see so much emphasis on Jesus. Everything's in Christ. Everything was done to them. It's all gift and grace, and it's all the things that the Lord is doing as he's blessing them 
first nine verses. The revelation of Jesus, is that concerning uh, back to first Peter, or more so fulfilling his revelation of who he is to accept us? I think it's him coming back when he's un- unveiled and manifested to us. Good question. Other questions? I assume that everybody's hearing me okay at least. That's not a problem for anybody. If I am. Uh, okay. If you aren't, then you won't know I asked that question, right? Hearing each other is probably going to be more challenging. We have high ceilings. So when you say something, yell it. Uh, the people around you can wear earplugs when necessary. So, um, all right. Uh, well, we come now to kind of the, uh, the the main point of the book, and we'll look in just a minute at how there's several points made. Well, let's go ahead and read this next section, ten to seventeen. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made in the same mind and the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, my closest people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am a Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Christus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did have baptized also, also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross, or cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. Okay, alright. So, Paul is exhorting them to be undivided, to be totally united. Now that is the first main topic, and I think the most important point from his standpoint he makes in the letter. Really chapters 1 through 4 relate to this report he's heard from Chloe's people about how they are dividing up into groups and parties, and uh, that they're, they're, they're quarreling and jealous and so forth. He's also in chapters 5 and 6 going to deal with some things that were actually reported. I don't know who those things were reported from, but, but he'll mention a man living with his father's wife and some other things. And then, starting in chapter 7, he will take up topics from their letter. And we'll look at that uh, when we get to that. But here, he encourages their unity because... He has been informed by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. I appreciate the fact that Paul's very open about where he got his information. You know, he gives credibility to what he's saying. This is not some hearsay. This is not some rumor. Actually, this is something that that Chloe's people reported to him. I believe that the seriousness of this charge really demanded that the church know who the accuser was. That it wouldn't have been right for this to say, here a lot of people have been telling me. You know what that means when somebody says, everybody's been telling me this. It means their wife, maybe their child, 
you know, if everybody's been telling you this, probably you ought to be able to name one or two. And, and that is better than just saying there's just kind of unidentified rumor floating around. So, and, and, and think about this. Was it wrong for Chloe's family to tell Paul about these divisions in Corinth? I don't think Paul's implying some blame against them for that. Now, it depends on why you're talking. But there are times when it may really help to tell Paul so he can help the Corinthian church deal with these issues. Sometimes we can tell someone about some problems someone's having with the purpose of trying to gain help for them. That's different from just trying to spread trash about somebody to belittle them or try to hurt them or whatever. So, he's found this out, and it's not a good thing. These people are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and so forth. When we start to align and define ourselves by one particular leader, or I'm a part of this particular group, a red flag will go up. We should not be divided like this. We shouldn't be identifying ourselves with a certain line, or a certain group, or a certain individual. That party mentality has to be avoided. Paul says, in verse 13, has Christ been divided? It's almost like they were taking Jesus' body and just slicing it into sections. That's not right. And he says, Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? You weren't baptized in the name of Paul, were you? Now you think about, if they were going to say they were Paul, then Paul had to have been crucified for them. And they would have to have been baptized in the name of Paul. If you think for a minute, what would it take then to be of Christ? To be of Christ, Christ had to be crucified for you, and you have to be baptized in the name of Christ. If that is what it would take to be of Paul, then to be of Christ, it would take the parallel things. The cross and baptism claim us for Christ. This is a passage because Paul talks about the unimportance of the one who does the baptizing that some people turn to to say, baptism must not be important. That's not at all what that's saying. He says, who baptizes you isn't important. Paul says, I'm really actually glad that I didn't baptize very many of you. Turned out that was providential. Not because he didn't want them to get baptized, but if he had had a greater role in baptizing people, maybe even more of them would have called themselves a Paul, and he certainly didn't want that. And so he mentions a couple that he baptized, and then he thinks of another, kind of an afterthought, which again shows you from Paul's perspective, who did the baptizing didn't matter. You know, it's, it's kind of a forgettable thing. And obviously... If Paul had been called to baptize, then he would have remembered names and had a head count. But in his case, it didn't matter who did the baptizing, and it doesn't matter. You stop and think about it. What happens if a jaybird plants an acorn? Does it grow jaybirds or oak trees? You know, it doesn't matter who does the planting, it matters what's planted. And that's certainly true here in this this connection. That it doesn't matter who does the baptizing. Now, does it matter that we're baptized? Absolutely. Does it matter that we are baptized properly? Absolutely. But who does it isn't a part of what makes that proper or not. I 
trace an unbroken succession of faithful baptizers back to the first century, anything like that. To be quite honest about it, do this may surprise you, I am not 100% certain who baptized me. It was in October of 69, it has been a while. It was during a gospel meeting, and I am not real sure, I think the local preacher did but I don't remember for sure about that. Uh, when you get to be my age, there's a lot of things you don't remember for sure. It doesn't matter. If I found out that the man who baptized me was actually some kind of a you know, scoundrel and it came out later, it wouldn't invalidate my baptism. So, but Paul says that, that he didn't want them following after him or anybody. We don't need to have this denominational brand name kind of an idea. Some kind of a, well, I'm this kind of a Christian. We need to be simple disciples of Christ and, and we've got to resist the urge to try to section ourselves off in some other way. I mean, everybody in the, in, in the denominational world is. And so our tendency is to try to say, well, I'm this kind of a Christian. Well, we ought to only be the only kind of Christians there are. And that is those that follow the Lord and those that follow His Word without trying to define that out in any other way. Uh, so Paul ends this with a transitional statement. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. You know, Paul didn't try to use the gospel as a means of promoting himself. He didn't try to impress people with himself. Because you think about it, how can you try to get people to think that you are great and that the Lord is at the same time? We've got to give the glory to God and not try to hoard it for ourselves or focus it on ourselves. So Paul's point is to preach the gospel in such a way that the cross of Christ was magnified and not himself. Okay, thoughts and comments through verse 17. So in verse 10, in contrast to the division, he says you're to be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Do you think he has anything specific there in mind when he says being of the same judgment? I mean, we're not all going to agree on every single point. So what does he have in mind there, do you think, when he says that we're to be of the same mind and the same judgment? I don't have a good answer for that, other than he's really trying to stress their unity. From looking at the book, even their attitudes toward each other were filled with jealousy and conflict and <coughs> pride. And so I would think in the context of the book, he's really saying you need to join your hearts together, your attitude together, you need to work together. I don't know that here the issue was primarily a doctrinal difference, as it was more this just rivalry and competitiveness. So I suspect in this context, that's more what he's thinking. Clearly, we do need to be united on God's word, which doesn't mean we're going to see eye to eye on every single detail. Uh, I think the Bible indicates that we won't do that. But, but I suspect here it's more attitude. Good question. Somebody else may have a better answer. Other questions or thoughts? Yeah. Well, along that line. Uh, no, it's you. 
men who are perishing the gospel's foolishness. You proclaim a crucified Jew from some forgotten village of the empire as God's son that will save men from their sins. That sounds like some sort of madness to the people of the world, the people who are perishing. To us, Christ is our salvation. He's our hope. He's our life. It all depends on where we're at. Now, in doing that, God destroys, he nullifies worldly wisdom. God makes the worldly wise look like idiots by the plan that he's devised. And he asks the question, rather triumphantly, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? The person who is well respected in this world, who's really wise and, and intelligent, educated and sophisticated and impressive, where is the world's wisdom? Now, we like that too much. We are too impressed with worldly sophistication. We're too impressed with secular education. We're too impressed with people who have high culture and philosophy and all of that because they're well thought of in the world. God does not He's not impressed with worldly sophistication. And, and, and think about it. Where is the world's wisdom? You know, those of us who tend to get too caught up in, in being impressed by that, we are more educated in many ways than we've ever been. Are we more moral? We have more means of helping each other. Are we less selfish? We have more means of communication than ever. Do we understand ourselves better? Each other better up? We have more psychology and education. Do we have less crime and less war? I mean, what you see is worldly wisdom is not solving our problems. The experts don't have the answers. And, and God has upstaged worldly wisdom by something that's a man is foolish. But God uses it to save men. He says, God, his wisdom, verse 21, made it to where the world through its wisdom could not know God. God can only be known in one way, through God's revelation of himself to mankind. We cannot philosophize and, and, and you know, think our way to knowing God. God, man has failed totally in knowing God apart from God revealing himself to us. It gave God great pleasure to redeem us. But he does that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, he contrasts that to what the world was looking for. The Jews wanted signs. The Greeks wanted wisdom. Isn't that true? The Jews were seeking a powerful Messiah that would deliver them from Roman bondage. The Greeks, with their proverbial love of learning, wanted some educated philosopher, teacher of, of uh, you know, various kinds of abstract truths and so forth. Christ didn't come as a conqueror, and he didn't come as a philosopher. What the people of the world got was weakness and folly. You know, to say Christ the Messiah crucified made as, not, about as much sense to the people of the world in the first century as talking about fried ice. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. God didn't 
he wasn't trying to get something that appealed to man. God outsmarted men. He says the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. God at his worst is better than man at his best. You think about that. You know, God has achieved what all human wisdom and human power has failed to achieve. Now, if you think about it, man have not changed. You know, we want success. We want power. We want something that works. We don't necessarily want political liberation. But we want prosperity. We want, we want happiness. We want good families. We want a Christ that will help us live a good, enjoyable, victorious life here on the earth. How is that that much different from what the Jews wanted? They wanted a worldly, believable king that would make them successful in life. Or we want sophistication. We want a Christ that does not embarrass us too much in front of our intellectual friends and neighbors. Maybe not fitting in with Plato and Aristotle. But at least we don't want him to be too narrow-minded and intolerant. We don't want him to be too radical as far as religion is concerned, or too incompatible with current, the current status of human learning. We want a lot what the Jews and the Greeks wanted, and that's not what Jesus gives us. God was not concerned with trying to appeal to what we liked. He gave us what we needed. He gave us what to man is foolish, but what to those who are being saved is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In that, God humbles human pride. He acts in defiance of human desire and expectation. If we're going to come to God, we will come to God on His terms, not on ours. And God tests our hearts. You know, we often want to modify the message to give men what they're looking for. God intentionally gave what He knew was not compatible with human tastes. You know, sometimes we try to work the miracle of saving people who don't even want to be saved by trying to adapt the gospel to make them like it. Our goal is not to make people like what God gives. There are a lot of people who won't like it. The Jews won't like it because they want the sign. The Greeks won't like it because they want wisdom. Now when we study modern man and what it will take to reach him and we try to change the gospel to where it will be more attractive to him, we're perverting God's plan. God is presenting his gospel in a take it or leave it way. It is not appealing to human wisdom or human power. But it is extremely effective to save you. I think we need to think through this, these kind of things more. I'm really just trying to throw out some ideas, trying to help you start thinking about this, and go back and reflect on what is this really saying for us. We need to be humble. And we need to trust the Lord that what He gives us in Christ is all we need. It may not impress anybody. God wasn't all overly concerned about that. It will impress the people who have good and honest, humble hearts that the Lord's looking for. Thoughts and comments on this section? Okay. Yes. You know, you talk about um, people wanting Jesus to be this you know, powerful political leader 
which essentially they had with Saul hundreds of years prior to it. Sure. They got what they wanted, but it wasn't what they needed. They apparently haven't learned their lesson from making that same mistake many years earlier. Yes. Our analysis of what we think we need is not accurate. Yeah. Good. By the way, I realize that over the course of these three days, sitting in these chairs is not the most pleasant experience in the world. It is perfectly okay with me. Anytime you want to get up and stand at the back, walk around at the back, whatever will help you. Uh, I, don't, I won't be distracted by that. I don't think anybody else will be. So uh, just you know, do what you need to. We will give some breaks, uh, but but that's not going to be enough to uh, help your uh, aching uh, back and so forth. So uh, so don't hesitate to do that. Would somebody be 26 to 31? Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, no, whether I baptize no, wait, redemption, but as it is written, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Okay, he says, look at yourselves. <laughs> there weren't many wise or mighty or noble who were called. I mean, the Corinthians were not primarily the elite of society. He says, actually, God's chosen the foolish, the weak, the base, the things that are just nothing before God. You look around at true Christians today, and typically, they're not the impressive people in the world. They're not typically the ones that have the power and influence. And they don't typically treasure what the world looks for. We're not among the beautiful people in the world, for the most part. That's just the way it's been. In the second century, I believe second century, there was a Greek writer... Uh, a skeptic named Celsus. This is what he wrote about the Christians. Their injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near. For these abilities are thought by us to be evils. But is any, for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who's a child, let them come boldly. By the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, and only slaves, women, and little children. We see them in their own houses, wool pressers, cobblers, and fullers, the most uneducated and vulgar persons, like a swarm of bats, or ants creeping out of their nests, or frogs holding a symposium around the swamp, or worms in conventicle in a corner of mud. That, that was his impression. <laughs> Of the Christians, clearly he has his own axe to grind uh, in that. Or, uh, uh, but, but, you know, still at all, the, you, they didn't impress him. That was one of his arguments against Christianity. Well, the people who are Christians are just nobodies. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly who God has chosen. Think about the came to Jesus. It was not mostly the higher echelon. It was mostly the common people, the simple people. 
Now think about what that does. Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. This humbles us. You know, we have what we have in Christ. From what God's done. It's not our achievement. God didn't choose us because, wow, we're just so impressive. We're just so amazing. It wasn't like that. And that ought to humble us. Christ is everything to us. He's our wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He's our redemption. If we're going to boast, let us boast in the Lord. We need to let the gospel and Jesus humble us. We shouldn't care about being impressive or sophisticated. That's not our goal. Now, think about some applications of this. Again, there are just so many important thoughts in, in these things that we really need. Um, think about who should we teach the gospel to? Well, sometimes we want to teach the gospel to respectable people. You know, we'd like to go to the upper middle class subdivisions. You'll get some people that are, you know, good people, nice people important people, impressive people, maybe we ought to be going more to the run-down trailer parks and to, to places where people who've had bad backgrounds are. How should we present ourselves? Do we try to impress people? You know, there's a lot of really important people that go to my church. You know, uh, we're, 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 we're you know, pretty good. I remember in my youth, people being really impressed and talking about that. There was a famous entertainer that was a Christian. He went to the church. He was, he was really important and famous. Now he turned out to completely believe the Lord. But when I was small, he was promoted a lot as, wow, he's a, he's a Christian. Who cares? Did that make Christianity better? That he was? Or worse when he left? <laughs> um... It needs to change our values. What do we see as important? Money? Education? Athletic ability? Charisma? Power? Beauty? Intelligence? What do you want for your children? If you could pick out any life you could have for your children, if you could pick out any set of abilities for your children, what would you want them to have? You know, that really tells a lot about what we value. What's really important to it? I want my kids to have a good job and a good education, and I want them to have plenty of money, and you know, I want them to be well respected. Is that what we want? That if if that's what we want, that will likely be what they'll reflect. How do we see each other? You know what really matters? Think about when the churches are choosing elders, or they're uh, picking out a preacher or something like that. You know, who do they choose? Who do they pick? Um, you know, are, are, we, are we focused on, uh, you know, worldly abilities and, and greatness and things like that? Thoughts and comments on this section? <laughs> yes? Calling is used a lot in this chapter. Yeah. Good point. That's very true, and it's true later on in the book as well. There's a lot of emphasis on God being the initiator. He calls us. 
I think that is relevant. This salvation is what Christ is accomplishing for us. We didn't take the initiative. We didn't invent the plan. We didn't execute it. We receive it by God's grace. But we're not, we didn't call ourselves. And so I do think that's a humbling thing. And, and he's trying to help them be more humble. They're really impressed with themselves and they need to lower their, uh, their concept of themselves. Yes? It's interesting that in verse 31, he's quoting from Jeremiah 9. Yes. It's in the context of judgment. And in 2 Corinthians 10, he ends 2 Corinthians with that same quote. So 1 and 2 Corinthians are almost bookended with that same quote from Jeremiah. Okay. I thought about that. Very good. Thank you. Yes. You know, King David himself has said in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. By saying that, he's <coughs> saying, you know, when compared, when compared to God, he's just, just, just a sheep, essentially. Now, this is, we're talking about, you know, a physical king here, and yet he himself realizes when compared to God, he has no power. Yeah, we definitely need to see our relationship with God, exalt God, and humble ourselves. Amen. Other thoughts? Joe? Would it be more impressive that this is coming from somebody who has given up? Yes. Yes. Good point. Yeah. He's not disparaging these things because he had no access to them. He could have had a very uh, good resume in Judaism. He did have the Philippians 3. So he's, you know, somebody who doesn't have any intelligence, education, sophistication can disparage those things and it looks like sour grapes. But in, in Paul's case, he's not impressed with even his abilities in those areas and he's counted them as a loss because they diminished his focus on the Lord. Yeah, very good point. Yes. something we think about a lot, or at least I think about a lot, because we think education is important. And we have to think about why is it important. And the more that I've thought about, the more that I've read this passage, it seems to me that education, being educated, is a tool. That tool is not going to make you a good carpenter. A good carpenter can make good carpentry things, can make good things with you know, not the right tools, but they do help. You know, being educated and learning to study in better the way that we think helps us a lot analyze the scriptures. But having those tools does not, it's not going to get us to God. It is only through the scriptures and understanding them that we can come to know Him. Yeah, much depends on our attitude. We've got to be humble. And I'm not overreading what we've gained educationally. 
Um, because it all depends on your heart. Sometimes we can get enough tools to pervert the scriptures if that's what we're trying to achieve. So ultimately, many of those things can be used for good or for bad, depending on who we are. And it's hard for people who are very accomplished to be humble. It's not impossible, but that's a challenge for us. Other thoughts? Yes, please. Just thinking about Thank you. 